Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And I have plenty of wonderful merch in my store, and the link is in my show notes. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. Okay, on with the show. We're continuing our journey through the 1890s, and we've hit 1897, so let's begin. On January 2nd, Thomas McGreevy died in Quebec City at the age of 71. Born in that same city on July 29, 1825, he served as an MP from 1867 to 1891, and from 1895 to 1896. That gap was because he was expelled from the House of Commons for corruption, and he spent a year in prison. His greatest impact on Canada was that he was the contractor for the building of the Parliament buildings. On January 23rd, one of the most unique and important Canadians during the Second World War was born. William Stevenson was born in Winnipeg and would leave school at a young age and then enlist in the First World War in 1916. He would join the Royal Flying Corps in 1917 and score 12 victories as a flying ace before he was shot down and crashed behind enemy lines on July 28, 1918. Captured by the Germans, he was held as a prisoner of war until he escaped in October of 1918. By the end of the war, he was a captain and received the Military Cross and the Distinguished Flying Cross. During the interwar years, he returned to Manitoba and created a system for transmitting photographic images via wireless. This earned him about $12 million a year in today's funds off the royalties. He then took that money and invested it in movies, automobile construction, cement companies, and more. By April of 1936, thanks to his business connections, he was able to provide information to Winston Churchill that the Nazi government was building up its armed forces. On June 21, 1940, he was sent to the United States by Winston Churchill to establish the British Security Coordination with the goal of pushing the American public in favor of entering the war and to investigate any enemy activities. He would become a close friend with President Roosevelt and recommended his friend William Donovan be put in charge of the U.S. intelligence services. Donovan would found the OSS as a result, which became the CIA in 1947. William Stevenson would set up Camp X, a secret training school for covert agents near Whitby, Ontario. It would train between 500 and 2,000 British, Canadian, and American covert operators between 1941 and 1945. Due to his impact on the Second World War, Stevenson was given the rare distinction for a Canadian of being knighted, which was personally requested by Churchill. In 1946, he received the Medal for Merit from President Truman, the first non-American to be honoured. In 1979, he was awarded the Order of Canada, and several buildings, streets, and statues exist in Canada to honour him. Possibly the biggest impact, though, was his influence on a man named Ian Fleming, who would create a character named James Bond. Fleming would say, James Bond is a highly romanticised version of a true spy. The real thing is William Stevenson. On January 29th, the Victorian Order of Nurses was founded in Ottawa, the creation of the organization dates back to the previous year when Lady Aberdeen, who was the wife of the Governor-General, came to Vancouver and heard the stories of women and children in remote areas of the country who were often alone as their husbands traveled long distances for medical help. 
She then spoke with the National Council for Women in Halifax and asked to create an order of visiting nurses in the country. And on February 10th of this same year, Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier would host an inauguration to formally create the organization. The organization continues to operate to this day and is the largest single national home care organization in Canada with a staff of 7,000 who are supported by 14,000 volunteers. On February 2nd, Clara Brett Martin would become the first woman to practice law in the British Empire. In 1891, she had submitted a petition to the Law Society of Upper Canada to permit her to become a student, but it was rejected with the society saying only men could be admitted to the practice of law. In 1892, women were permitted to be solicitors, and in 1893, Martin began to article with the Toronto firm of Mullock, Miller, Crowther, and Montgomery, but she was treated poorly there. This year, she also earned a law degree and entered partnership at a law firm. Lester B. Pearson was born on April 23rd of this year in Newton, Burke, Ontario, and he would go on to have a massive impact on Canada. Pearson was the son of a Methodist parson and would spend his childhood moving from one location to another until he enrolled to study history at the University of Toronto. While studying, the First World War erupted and he quickly enlisted in the Canadian Army Medical Corps, shipping to Greece in 1915 to join the Allied armies in their fight with the Bulgarians. Unfortunately, his military career ended when a London bus hit him, sending him home. Pearson would graduate from the University of Toronto in 1919, but he didn't know where his future career would take him. He would try law and business and earn a fellowship to Oxford, but settled on teaching history at the University of Toronto while also coaching tennis and football. Eventually, with a family to care for, he realized his professor's salary was not enough, and he would join the Department of External Affairs in 1928, and he became one of the most important workers in the department, and Deputy Minister O.D. Skelton began to notice him. In 1935, he would be sent as the first secretary in the Canadian High Commission in London, and seeing the move towards war firsthand, he realized how important it was to form a collective defense in the form of aggression. After the war was over, he would find himself the Canadian ambassador to the United States and attended the founding conference of the United Nations at San Francisco in 1945. One year later, he was called to the home of Prime Minister William Lyne Mackenzie King to become the Deputy Minister of External Affairs. In 1948, he became the Minister of External Affairs and was elected to the House of Commons. As a minister, he was instrumental in Canada joining NATO in 1949, as he was strongly in favour of a Western self-defence organisation that he hoped would keep the Soviet Union at bay. He would also help lead Canada into the Korean War, and in 1952, he was the president of the UN General Assembly. His goal was to find solutions to the Korean War, but the Americans felt he was too inclined to compromise. In 1956, though, he would become instrumental in creating a UN peacekeeping force, which would be the first to reduce the tensions over the Suez Crisis. He was able to ease the British and French out of Egypt, and for his work, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. After all's been said and done, the winner of the 1957 Nobel Peace Prize is Lester B. Pearson, former Canadian Minister for External Affairs. With the prestige accruing to that honour, he also wins a cash award of $40,000. Mr. Pearson had been considered for the award five years ago in recognition of his giant share in creating first the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, then the United Nations itself. Things continued to look up for Pearson in his career. Despite an election loss by the Liberal Party to Diefenbaker and his Conservatives, in 1958 Pearson would become the leader of the Liberal Party, serving as a leader of the opposition. Things did not get off to a great start after Diefenbaker was able to guide his party to the biggest win in Canadian election history, leaving Pearson with the task of rebuilding the Liberal Party. 
He would succeed in this, helping the Liberals in the 1962 election when they took 100 seats, far above the 49 they had before. One year later, the Diefenbaker government collapsed, and the Liberals were able to form a minority government with 128 seats. Lester B. Pearson was now the Prime Minister of Canada. Effectively taking office on April 22, 1963, his government got down to work with altering Canada in immense ways despite a minority government. One of the most important achievements of the Pearson government, which consisted of two minority governments from 1963 to 1968, was Canada got a new flag, was kept out of Vietnam, the armed forces were united into a unified force, Medicare was created, and there was a de facto abolishment of capital punishment, and the Canada Pension Plan was established. In, in writing about these years, in the, the, the first of your three volumes, and, and thinking again about your days as an undergraduate, as a professor, as a, as a baseball player, and, and of course as a, as a diplomat, have you ever regretted assuming that, that terrible responsibility, taking the buffeting in the public prints that have... That have oh, there were times, I admit, uh, uh, when I was in office, when I looked back with some uh, nostalgic longing to the days when I was immune as a civil servant from criticism, but if you go into politics, you, you have to accept this. It's uh, it's a, not a high price to pay. It's a price to pay for doing what you want to do and what you feel you ought to do. But remember that I went into politics as Secretary of State for External Affairs, and that wasn't a very partisan or controversial post. And I never expected to be anything more. And during that ten years when I was Secretary of State for External Affairs, I had very little, I was very fortunate, very little controversy and very little trouble in the House of Commons. All parties were agreed on the natural, on the lines of our foreign policy and the principles of our foreign policy. And I'm sure some of my colleagues must have thought I had a very enviable portfolio indeed. I didn't take any buffeting then. In fact, you took a Nobel Prize. <laughs> I got into a little controversy over the Suez in 56, but, but that, was a, that was a legitimate difference of opinion on a question of high principle and what we should have done then. And I, don't, I didn't mind that. It was only later when I became the leader of the party and... Uh, and I was right in the middle of domestic controversy at a very controversial time. By 1965, things were changing in the Liberal Party with Pierre Trudeau rising in prominence and rifts forming with Quebec. In 1967, Pearson announced he was retiring and a Liberal convention picked Trudeau to be the new leader and new Prime Minister of Canada. After his retirement, he served as the chair of the Commission on the International Development and he lectured on politics and history at Carleton University. In 1970, he lost his right eye due to a tumor operation and while writing his three-volume set of memoirs, he passed away on December 27, 1972. Quebec would go through a provincial election on May 11th of this year. The Liberals were led by Félix-Gabriel Marchand, who was hoping to lead the party to prominence after a poor showing in the previous election, one in which he nearly lost his own seat. As he headed into the 1897 election, his popularity was high, voters loved the Liberal Party of Canada, and he was ready to take his party to the promised land. The Conservatives were now led by Edmund James Flynn, who had taken over the leadership of the party in 1896. In the election campaign, Flynn would focus on the achievements of the previous year, of which he had accomplished quite a bit despite limited time and power. He asked voters to judge his party on the programs and the results, and not to let the popularity of Wilfrid Laurier sway the vote. Marchand would focus his campaign on the government record of the Conservatives, telling voters that the Conservatives had managed the finances of the province poorly. He would be aided by the campaign organizers of Laurier, who were coming in hot after their own election win. In the May 11, 1897 election, the Liberals scored a landslide victory by gaining 30 more seats than they had in 1892 to finish with 51 for a dominant majority in Parliament. 
They also gained an excellent 9% more of the popular vote. The 51 seats won by the party was the most the party had ever won to that point, eight more than their highest total of 43 in 1890. The Conservatives would collapse, losing 28 seats and fell to the role of the official opposition for only the fourth time since Confederation. The 23 seats won by the party was its worst showing in the 19th century and its steepest drop in seats in history. On July 4th, Amor de Cosmos died in Victoria at the age of 71. He was born in Nova Scotia on August 20th, 1825, and after a time with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, then became a prospector during the California Gold Rush, where he set up a studio and started taking pictures of miners and their operations. In 1854, he had his name changed from William Alexander Smith to Amor de Cosmos, or Lover of the Universe. In 1858, he moved to Victoria and founded a newspaper, the Daily British Colonist, which today is the Victoria Times Colonist. He served as its editor until 1863, and he would argue passionately for free enterprise, public education, economic and political privileges for all, and responsible government. In 1871, he became a member of the House of Commons, serving from 1872 to 1882. During that time, he also served as an MLA in the British Columbia Legislature from 1871 to 1874, and during that period in the legislature, he was the second Premier of the province from 1872 to 1874. As Premier, he pushed for the development of schools, economic expansion, and political reform. But as more of the cosmos grew older, people began to notice odd tendencies in his behaviour. He became prone to outbursts of crying and a fierce temper and in a deep fear of electricity. In 1895, he was declared of unsound mind, and as the Klondike Gold Rush began, he set up a company to deliver hot food to prospectors in the gold fields, but the logistics of the service would result in the company failing. I just did an episode on Amor to Cosmos on my other podcast, From John to Justin, so check it out. In my episode on 1896, the Klondike Gold Rush was just starting, and it was quite small. This was all about the change in 1897, when things kicked off in a big way as news spread of the discovery of gold. Now, it took some time for news to reach the wider world through the winter of 1896-97, but on July 15, 1897, the first prospectors from the Klondike arrived in San Francisco, and two days later in Seattle, bringing with them huge amounts of gold. The press reported the gold was worth $1.1 million, or $1 billion today. Amazingly, this was actually an underestimate of the actual amount that came in. Not surprisingly, people began to flock to the gold fields of the Yukon, between 1897 and 1898, 100,000 people would try to reach the Klondike, with 30 to 40,000 making it. The reason for this huge influx is partly because of the economic recession the United States was in at the time, leaving many unemployed and dealing with poverty. The promise of riches in the Yukon was too much to ignore for some. The lure of making money in the Klondike, or on those going to the Klondike, was also too much for some people. William Wood, the mayor of Seattle, actually resigned and formed a company to transport prospectors to the Klondike. There were several routes to the Klondike, but the gold could only be reached by the Yukon River, and getting to the Klondike was not exactly easy with the terrible cold of the winters, hot and short summers, impassable rivers, and mountainous terrain. And knowing there were going to be huge influx of prospectors, the Canadian government implemented rules that required anyone entering the Yukon to have a year's supply of food, along with tools, camping equipment, and other essentials. In all, each prospector was moving about one ton of weight with them. I actually did an episode on the Klondike Gold Rush, so check it out. Now I want to look at the various routes that were used during the Klondike, especially from 1897 to 1898. First, you had the all-water route, which went from Seattle to the Alaska coast. From St. Michael at the Yukon River Delta, it was possible to take a river boat all the way to Dawson. 
With speed and no overland travel, it was a route that was much easier than the other routes. It was also expensive. At the start of the stampede, tickets for this route were about $150 or $4,000 today, but by the winter the cost was $1,000 or $27,000 today. In 1897, 1,800 prospectors went this route, but most were stuck along the river when the river froze in October. Only 43 of the 1,800 actually reached the Klondike before winter, and 35 had to return because they threw away most of their equipment en route. The Skagway route was used by most prospectors. Their ships would land at Dia and Skagway at the head of the Lynn Canal at the end of the Inside Passage, and from there they would travel over the mountain ranges into the Yukon and then down the river network. Camps were sprung up along the route for prospectors to eat and sleep at. At first, you could go from Seattle to Dia for $40 or $1,100 today, but by the winter, steamships were not releasing their prices because they were increasing them on a daily basis. If a prospector landed at Skagway, they took the White Pass Trail, later called the Dead Horse Trail because of the huge number of horses who died en route. The trail was a terrible route and was closed in late 1897. Those who landed at Dia took the Chilkoot Trail, which went up the Chilkoot Pass, and 22,000 prospectors went over that pass during the gold rush. Due to the need to take so much food and equipment, the cold and the steepness of the slope, it often took a prospector an entire day to get to the top of the slope, and often they had to make numerous trips. By December of 1897, a tramway was set up that would take freight up at a cost of 8.30 cents, or 2 to $8 today per pound. Once over the pass at the Yukon River, they would take the 800-kilometer journey along the river to Dawson City. Due to the people using boats that were not worthy of being on the water and after the deaths of hundreds on the river, the Northwest Mounted Police introduced safety rules, boat inspections, and the banning of women and children from going through the rapids. All boats had to have a licensed pilot as well. And there was also the All-Canadian Route, which ran up from British Columbia, and three which started in Edmonton, but most were barely trails at all, and of the 1,660 prospectors who took the three routes out of Edmonton, only 685 arrived, and it took them 18 months to make the journey. In the summer of 1897, about 766 prospectors traveled from Edmonton on that All-Canadian Overland Route, and of those, only a handful went through the South Nahani River Route. Only two of several dozen are known to have made it through that route. Of the valley, legendary historian Pierre Burton would say in 1947, The legend of the Headless Valley, it is one of the few places of bona fide folklore that we have in Canada. I think you will agree that it is a pretty good legend too, for it has something of almost everything in it. Of those who made it to the Klondike to be prospectors, well, of the 30 to 40,000 who reached Dawson City, 15,000 to 20,000 actually became prospectors. Of those, 4,000 struck gold, but only a few hundred became rich. On September 19th, Frederick Cope died at the age of 48 in the Yukon. Born on August 27, 1849 in Canada West, he would come out to British Columbia and served as the third mayor of Vancouver from 1892 to 1893. As mayor, he attempted to limit city expenses and fired city employees due to the economic downturn. He would lose his life while crossing Shallow Lake on his horse. He fell from his horse, and while attempting to rescue his horse, he was pulled away by the current. On September 23rd, Walter Pidgeon was born in St. John, New Brunswick. After attending the University of New Brunswick and studying law and drama, he would serve in the First World War and then move to Boston to work as a banker. Disliking the work of a banker, he started to act on stage, making his Broadway debut in 1925 and appearing in silent films through the decade. After some popular films, he went back to Broadway and by this time he returned to Hollywood in 1937, where he was appearing in secondary roles. Wouldn't you like to change me? Wouldn't take long. How long? Oh, about a lifetime. 
you're leaving in two or three days, I'll never see you again. Who knows? I may spend the rest of my life here with you. Why should you? No, it's not there. Now, where do you suppose? I'm sorry. Oh, that's all right. Did I hurt you? No, you couldn't hurt me, Mr. Pigeon. Put me down at once, sir. You said the man you love must take, madam. But not my breath. All of you. That changed in 1941 when he starred in How Green Was My Valley. In 1942, he starred in Mrs. Miniver and earned his first Oscar nomination for Best Actor, followed by a second nomination for Madame Curie in 1943. From 1952 to 1957, he served as the president of the Screen Actors Guild, and he would receive a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. In 1975, he received the Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award, and he would pass away in 1984 at the age of 87. On September 29th, Graham Towers was born in Montreal. He would attend McGill University and during the Second World War served as the chairman of the Foreign Exchange Control Board and the chair of the National War Finance Committee. He was a proponent of the creation of the Bank of Canada and he would achieve that and be the first governor of the Bank of Canada from 1934 to 1954. In 1969, he was awarded the Order of Canada and he passed away in 1975 at the age of 78. On October 1st, Alexander Warburton would become the Premier of Prince Edward Island. He had first been elected to the legislature in 1891 and would become the Premier when Frederick Peters resigned and moved to British Columbia. Warburton would serve very briefly, only until August 1st, 1898, when he resigned to take on a judicial appointment. One interesting aspect of Warburton was that before entering politics, he pushed to beautify Charlottetown, which included planting 800 trees, many of which still stand to this day. On October 7th, with the introduction of responsible government in the Northwest Territories, Frederick Haltain became the Premier of the Territory. He would remain in charge until 1905 when Alberta and Saskatchewan became provinces. And despite pushing to create the provinces, he was denied Premiership because he was a Conservative and Wilfrid Laurier wanted a Liberal Premier. On October 29th, Henry Emerson became Premier of New Brunswick, replacing James Mitchell. Also serving as the Attorney General at this time, his government attempted to promote tourism and wheat farming in the province, as well as the development of the oil and gas industry. He also introduced legislation to grant women the right to vote, but it was defeated, and he would serve until 1900 when he left to become a Liberal MP in the House of Commons. On October 21st, Philip Little would die at the age of 72 or 73 in England. Born sometime around 1824 in Charlottetown, he became the first Roman Catholic lawyer to practice law in St. John's, Newfoundland. He would lead a charge of responsible government and in 1855 was selected as the first Prime Minister of Newfoundland, serving until 1858. He was appointed to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland that year and served as the Chief Justice until 1868. On December 31st, David Oppenheimer would die at the age of 63 in Vancouver. Born in Germany on January 1, 1834, he came to North America in 1848 and then traveled to California to take advantage of the California Gold Rush in 1851. In 1858, he and his brother took the supply business to Victoria and established stores for prospectors during the Fraser River and Caribou Gold Rushes. During the construction of the CPR through British Columbia, he did extensive business with the company, purchasing land through a syndicate at various places along the route. After the Great Vancouver Fire, he founded the Vancouver Board of Trade and was its first chairman. In 1888, he became the second mayor of Vancouver, serving until 1891. During his time as mayor, a ferry would be established to Burrard Inlet. A streetcar system began, and a water connection to the Capilano River was built. He also set up the first fire department and pushed hard for a city hospital, playgrounds, and parkland. He would be mayor when Stanley Park opened, and he would promote the mining industry of the province. 
Also this year, the first Canadian movie was filmed, made by James Freer and released in 1898. It's now lost to time, but it was exhibited in the United Kingdom as promotion for the CPR to bring in immigration to the country. The film, called Ten Years in Manitoba, consisted of a series of short scenes that included trains arriving, people working in fields, and footage of Thomas Greenway, the Premier of Manitoba, stuck in grain on his farm. Lastly, Wilfrid Laurier would travel to London to be knighted and to participate in the first colonial conference. Laurier did not actually want to be knighted in the tradition of Alexander Mackenzie, but as he was traveling to England for the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Victoria and preparations had already been made for his knighthood, he felt it would be rude if he did not accept. I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at 1897. Sorry for the break last week, but next week we're looking at 1898. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many you can sink your teeth into. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those links in the show notes. 911.